Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Monday, Monday October 10th. 10-10. 2022. Yeah, good. You're on it. It's an exquisite fall day. You gotta get outside. But, what? But. But what? It's freezing. Well, no, it's not freezing. Okay. It's it's crisp. It's delightful. I have actually been out in the yard doing stuff. Mm-hmm. and um, But there's no fall color. Because... We're way behind in terms of color. Because what? I don't know. You know, ask the meteorologist. Oh, God. All right. It's All right. it's a late, I guess because it was so warm. I don't know. We'll it's a there. late, late fall. All right. As far as I'm concerned. I'm not going It anywhere. feels like fall. Maybe it isn't late. Maybe it's perfectly normal. But the point is, it feels like fall. It looks like spring or summer. But I always remember, we used to have that party, that it would uh, the fall color would peak like the third week in October. Does that sound right? What this is not. Mm, no, no. I think I think uh, the party was always after the peak, actually. Well, that doesn't that doesn't inform anything. I, the question really is: Is the third week in October or not? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not an expert. Okay. I'm just saying. There's no. Everything's green outside. Wait till the twentieth. And yet, there's something about. You're jumping the gun. The sun, by this time the angle, next week, this time, it looks like, it seems like it should be fall. By this time next week, you'll see plenty of color. You think so? Yeah. Don't worry about it. From your lips to Mother Nature's ears? Yes. That's the way it usually works. All right. So we're going to leave with the museum update because you were allowed into New York City last week. Well, I did drag myself into New York. Well, I dragged you. With you. Yeah. On public transportation. It wasn't so bad. It wasn't bad at all. Mm-hmm. Nothing bad about it. You got mm-hmm. a seat on the train, which is not always the case mm-hmm. um, in the past. And uh, took the subway. Mm-hmm. No problems there. And uh, went up to the Met. And I had I had remarked previously that I'm overdue for a trip to the Met. Right. I had been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art last late spring mm-hmm. with my buddy Pepper. Yeah. But we just whipped in, saw the Knights in Armor, yeah. you know, and a few other things and whipped out. She doesn't know? have much patience for a girl that's 22 months old. No, 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 no. I don't no. know what her I, problem I think, is. I think uh, she was, I just don't like to um, put too much uh, pressure on her mm-hmm. to spend hours enjoying something, you know. In fact, I repeat, the way to enjoy a museum really is to be a member Mm-hmm. And you can dart in, look at one thing, mm-hmm. whether it's one exhibition or one object, and dart out, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when you want to. Mm-hmm. It's a little wonderful snack. Okay. Um, and you can't do that if you're traveling, if you go to a museum uh, on your vacation or something. You want to get everything out of the museum. But for the museums that are close enough to you, mm-hmm. be a member. It's not that expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, it gives you the opportunity to just, rather than drag yourself through everything and just be, put another culture notch on your belt, uh, just go in and enjoy something. Um, and that's not what I did. I, I am a member. <laughs> but you don't live close to the museum. So I, well, you know, I don't live that far. It's not impossible, right. but, um, but I went in. And uh, I I saw more than even what I planned to see. So I walked in the museum. I saw that exhibition of Greek and Roman 
sculpture that's all about uh, the polychrome aspect right. of Greek sculpture in the past. Back, back in the day, the Greek sculptures were actually painted. Mm-hmm. And uh, modern-day firms have done research and approximated what that really looked like. And so they've made these um, kind of reproductions uh, of uh, uh, sculptures based on that research. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they're shocking to our eyes because we really see something. We really love that stark uh, white marble of the Greek sculptures. And, um, and, And they even did some approximations of what some of the bronzes originally looked like. The bronzes were painted and colored in ways that you might find surprising. Uh, So, you know, the boxer, which is a a sculpture uh, that's normally in Rome, and it's one of my favorites. Uh, uh, You know, I'm saying that wrong. Is it the the boxer or the wrestler? But anyway, uh, moving right along. So that was fun. And, I, you know, as I've said before, I've seen, I've been reading about this for years and seeing the pictures, but let me tell you one thing. Seeing art in person is an entirely different experience than seeing it on the page or on your computer monitor or, God forbid, on your phone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I bring that up in reference to the fabulous uh, exhibition of the magnificent poem jars of David Drake. Okay. Um, and it's... Um, from an exhibition at the Met actually called Hear Me Now, The Black Potters of Old Edgefield, South Carolina. And we talked about this uh, before. And it's true. They are big, fabulous jars. And it's not that I'm even, I'm not terribly into pottery. And, uh, you know, I even have friends who are, who collect, you know, modern uh works of the potter's art and I kind of don't get it at all but these I got Mm -hmm. these were uh, terrific um, created by David Drake we talked about him before an enslaved potter uh, working in uh, South Carolina and he actually he, he inscribed some of his pots with just little snippets you know uh somewhere between a poem and a haiku kind of thing uh that has something to do with the object, sometimes something to do with uh, who it's going to. But even outside of that, visually, um, incredibly simple, incredibly wonderful, and just huge. And again, that is something I, you know, I read about them and I looked at them, the pictures, and still in person, uh, quite terrific. And they also had the, the face jugs I talked about before we, we talked about the exhibition. And those were great fun and fascinating and uh, interesting to speculate where that tradition came from. If it um, actually came from uh, uh, traditions having to do with spirits uh, in Africa, etc. And translating that into uh, their American culture. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, other big surprise, kimono style. I was on the second floor, yeah. and I just thought, oh, I'll go into the Asian section, yeah. you know. 
it's not like I'm an expert on Asian art or anything, but I always find a great exhibition way, way in the back, back there. And I did again, kimono style. They had kimonos going from the 17th century to probably the 21st century. Mm -hmm. But it was the old ones, the ancient ones that were so dramatic and beautiful. Most of them having been worn by men. And the, the great kimonos were developed, a lot of them, for samurais and samurai families. That was, you know, the epitome of uh, style and sort of and a sort of aristocracy. And uh, then these were also translated in garb for various theatrical traditions and groups. And uh, what was amazing about them, you think of Imigar, you think of the kimonos you see on the you know, in your basic, uh, you know, Asian print or fan or something. Oh, very nice. So, you know, some flowers, some birds, whatever. Nice pastel. These were extraordinary in terms of just graphic um, design mm -hmm. and abstract and, you know, just wonderful patterns. Uh, and there were fun ones, too. There was a great one... Uh, from the 1930s, um, and uh, with uh, kind of gray with a wonderful spider on the back. And uh, it, it just seemed like a fabulous Halloween kimono. But it's from the 1930s, not even from the 1970s, you know. And, and 1930s, that's 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you could tell people that was made yesterday, and, uh, you know, no one would doubt you. Um, so that was just, again, uh, I think, I highly suspect that was all um, more delightful to my eyes, uh, seeing those in person than even seeing the shapes. I don't think you capture everything about the, the textiles and uh, um, the play of light with the different weaves in addition to those great patterns. I mean, the patterns you would certainly catch uh, in a picture. But uh, so that was a total surprise and uh, just uh, fabulous. And I went to visit my buddies, the Lama Sioux. I always got to see them. And then finally, I, you know, I heard about the show, The Tudors, mm -hmm. which turns out to be The Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England. And uh, it wasn't posted, like, uh, on their stuff of what's on today. It turns out that uh, it wasn't quite open. If you were a member, mm -hmm. get that? Member. Yeah. You could go in. So I walked up, flashed my card, and went in. Another fun, fun experience. You know the Tudors, right? Henry VIII. Sure. Elizabeth, yeah, his daughter, okay, Mary, her half sister, Edward, her half brother. We're you know we've been the Americans have been quite into royalty lately with the passing Some of Americans, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. Sure. you know, and it's been obsessing uh, people. And actually, so um, the art you displayed the portraits you had made of yourself, mm -hmm. uh, the way you decorated your palace uh, was, uh, you know, done, was a key thing during this period. 
Henry VIII had a zillion tapestries. Tapestries were in. Tapestries were cool. And uh, a lot of them had to do with, you know, trying to prove just how sophisticated he was, how cultured he was, how linked to history and certain aspects of religion. Um, you know, he had that whole deal going on with religion. Um, and uh, so there were tapestries there. There were portraits. You've seen the Holbein portraits. Um, who doesn't love a Holbein don't look at me blank. I know what the Holbein. Okay, is. all right. Just give but me, raising my give hand, me a friendly. Give I, me a friendly nod. I don't love Holbein, but uh, why I don't not? Holbein, you don't love Holbein? No, it's everybody it's, loves Holbein. It's, it's too realistic. It's static. It's it's not dynamic. It's it, 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 Have it, you ever seen them in person? No. Ah, there you have it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, Holbein was a big Henry VIII guy. Uh, what's interesting, though, yeah, his paintings are pretty realistic compared to um they're very realistic yes they're very realistic yeah. compared to uh elizabeth queen elizabeth the mm-hmm. famous queen elizabeth right uh well i can't say that now the other one is pretty famous elizabeth the first shall we say um and uh the her portraits very interesting but they become very stylized very flat mm-hmm. uh completely different style of portraiture and there were some great ones there and showing her in in different periods and of course you know again portraiture is how is your face page it's telling people what you want them to see about you um so there you know uh, so there was a variety of tutors there and uh that was a lot of fun too and because it was members only actually it was not super duper crowded mm-hmm. in fact the museum itself I, it was not impossibly crowded uh, but there it was getting a good attendance which so it felt good to be back uh right. well, look, in the crowd you clearly were very excited about going to the museum afterwards so i think you uh missed i it. was kind of dreading it before it's like uh tromping wow. around the museum blah 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 no, but you had a good time uh, and i had a great time yeah all right well i spent that time at my office mostly talking about the mets people and i guess as uh, i should uh, reflect on the fact that mets got knocked out uh, I know this is top of mind for most everybody. Let me just say this about the Mets. Um, it's a philosophical question whether it pays to overachieve, which is what the Mets did during the year when they won 101 games. They overachieved. They were never a great team. <laughs> and then uh, when it comes back to Earth, and it's like Earth to Mets, and they start playing superior teams in the playoffs, you say, well, gee, that team is a lot better than the Mets. What's going on? And that's a little bit what happened. I mean... Uh, uh, the Mets, so um, what do you suggest next year, Bucky? Just say to the guys, let's slow it down no, a little no. bit. That's why let's I, not do all this winning in the first half of the season. Yeah, well, it's, strangely, you're rewarded for that. That's the Phil's experience. Uh, they didn't do all that winning, and they won their first playoff series. Now they're being celebrated. Look, it is a, it is the price you pay for overachieving. It's like the Giants. The I, Giants. The you Giants. Know, are, how can you know? I'm not. I'm not advocating any approach. I'm because just, because they I'm didn't make it to the playoffs, they were overachievers earlier in no, the season. I watched the team. I knew they weren't a great team the whole season. If you knew, if you were a true Met fan, you said to yourself, "This is interesting," but they're relying heavily on the fact that they're going to be led in the playoffs by a pitcher who's 38 years old and another one who's missed half the season because of injuries, who's in his mid 30s, and that nobody does that. And they went, and that was their strength. They went into a team which had younger 
a little, well, in one case, one guy is his mid-30s, but the other guys are younger, more effective starting pitching, and guess what? They're knocked out. Well, I know you've never forgiven them for um, getting rid of Zach Wheeler. And he is a better, younger, more healthy pitcher than the guys the Mets have, yeah. and he showed it for the Phils. So, and look, I, I'm not, uh, it's not a matter of forgiving or not forgiving. The fact of the matter is that the Mets reach their level. Water seeks its own level, and the Mets are at their level. It's not like the ball bounced in a funny way and they're out of the playoffs. They are, but they are. And they were a playoff team, but not a team destined to go far in the playoffs. That's what they are. And uh, look, uh, my point about uh, overachieving is is more the kind of point I would make to someone who's who's freaking out right now, as many people are, saying, how could this great Met team, you know, flunk? They were never a great Met team. They were good. They were very good, but they weren't great. All right. I know you wanted to hear that. So in terms <laughs> of the letters, the article that you and I, you and I, Hamzen and Dan found ourselves talking about with uh, the most passion during the week was the article about uh, the NYU professor. The headline was NYU students were failing class. The professor lost his job. Uh, a fellow named Maitland Jones Jr., who had been a professor at Princeton for years and for the last uh, ooh, 10 or 15 years has been a contract professor post-retirement of Princeton uh, at NYU teaching organic chemistry. Organic chemistry is the course that every pre-med student has to take and has to achieve a certain level if they're going to get into medical school. It's sort of a gating well, item. When we were in college, everybody complained about orgo. Yeah, orgo. That's what it was. It was a big challenge. Well, it turns out it was too big a challenge for 80 or so of the 350 students that Maitland Jones had at NYU who signed a petition saying that, you know, this course is too hard. People are having trouble getting by the course. They can't pass the course. And uh, something, sh you know, should be done about the professor, as they put in the Times, blaming Dr. Jones for their poor test scores. So what did uh, NYU do in response to this petition? Uh, they fired Dr. Jones. Uh, not only did they fire Dr. Jones, but, uh, and this is in, in a way, to me, more bizarre, is they went to the students and they said they'd review their grades so they possibly would get a passing grade after all. This is kind of weird. And they said that, look, if, uh, if you feel that it wasn't really a good experience for you or it was an unfair experience, you can withdraw from the class retroactively so that you have no grade. No negative grade is apparently you've been receiving, which is crazy, if you ask me. But in any event... Why do you think it's so crazy? You can't... What is that? I mean, that's... What kind of academic rigor, what kind of academic structural well, academic no academic standards rigor. is that? I mean, you can't go to people and say, you know, you took the class, the understanding is you, 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 you'd uh, study and whatever, and you'd be, you know, tested. And if you don't like your grade, fine, never happened. That does It's not the way universities are run. It's not the way the world is run. Uh, but they said they're going to do it. And then while you recognize, they said this is highly unusual. This is a once, once and forever situation, but we're going to do it. So there was a controversy about this because, uh, you know, were, were the students uh, kind of crybabies? Were they asking for too much? It's just a Generation Z thing. Uh, Dr. Jones, I will say, uh, has a great reputation. He's been an award-winning professor. He wrote the Organic Chemistry book. He apparently extended himself quite a bit in certain ways to try to make the course uh, easier to understand, to try to help the students. There are some objective things he, he objective steps he took as described in the Times article. Um, and he has a lot of defenders. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, so once this article 
was published in the New York Times, there were a ton of letters, as you pointed out to me. Well, comments. Comments, yeah. comments. To the on, online. I read the article online, uh, and it says at the bottom, 6,000 comments. In the one day? And at a certain in the point, first day? Yeah, the first day. Was, and and um, it was, uh, and then it actually they closed. Comments were closed. Oh, they closed? <laughs> after that. <laughs> I guess it couldn't fit any more in the cloud. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I have a few things but, to but, say. But, but the comments were almost universally in support of Dr. Jones and against NYU. Well, because who reads the New York Times? Uh, who? Elderly people like us. <laughs> okay. Well, who are saying, those young whippersnappers, you know, they think they can get away well, with there were, nothing. There were kind of funny you comments know? saying that, look, I, if I go to a doctor's office and I see he went to NYU, I'm leaving the office. <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, great. Uh, now we have doctors who won't know organic chemistry because NYU is going to make it possible, you know. Uh, well, and then you have, uh, you have kids who are reading this and saying, gee, that's where I want to go. Yeah, NYU. Because <laughs> you can you skate know, by. Passing, Got it. First I, of all, I got to say, uh, having been uh, an instructor in college, I would flip out if anybody changed my grades. Yeah. I, I Really? I would flip out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, he's flipped it, out. He's it, fired. Well, <laughs> he, well, let's be fair. He wasn't rehired for next year. Okay. Okay. I, he was on, he's, he's 84 years old, yeah. right? They wrote him, they wrote him he, a letter he, that said, you will not be rehired because, quote, you did not rise to the standards we require from our teaching faculty. Okay, you will not be rehired. Yeah. Right, right. Didn't rise to their standards. Okay. okay. And, and, Harsh. Yeah. Harsh. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm very conflicted about this because it's, it sounds like a stupid way to proceed uh, on, on my university's part. part. Yeah. Yes, um, we agree. I, uh, he is very well known. And the, the letters you wrote, some of them had personal experiences having studied with him yeah and what a great interesting fascinating um teacher he was yeah uh and i'm willing to believe that uh there were challenges for him in terms of connecting with students who are 60 70 years right. younger than he is. Right. As, um, as you said a moment ago, he's 84 years old. Yeah. And he even says that he, he, he doesn't care about being fired. He's, he was going to retire anyway. Right. So... Um, it is, you make a so, very interesting point about that. Um, so, I mean, so there's a chance that uh, no matter how brilliant a teacher he was, that uh, his current curriculum or his current course wasn't landing for the current student body okay and whether that would take more technology less technology i don't know but he also mentioned students were not coming to the class right okay yeah. and students were not doing the work right all right so so that i think is a real problem right. that can be a real problem and uh you know i think uh to some extent uh maybe Due to the pandemic, we've lost the knack of going to class, or we've lost the knack of... I mean, it used to be, I hate to sound like an old fart, but it used to be if your professor said, do this, you did it. And if you didn't do it, you understood there were consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure why the culture has changed so much that uh, students are not intimidated into doing the work anymore. Well, 
Well, I'll tell you something. After this by NYU, no one's going to be intimidated. He he actually said, look, I, it's hard to know exactly what students do. He said, frankly, but I can count the house and no one's going to class. Very few people are going to class or lesser numbers are going to class. And he did make the point. He understood, acknowledged that COVID had some effect, but he said, I have seen a substantial diminution of what I think is effort, but certainly quality in terms of what I'm seeing in terms of the exams uh, over the last 15 years. And I think, it, uh, I mean, it reflects a lack of work. It also reflects a lack of writing skill. But uh, I don't know what you do about that. But that's what he said. Yeah, that lack of writing skills he keeps said, coming up. He said he, they couldn't even seem to understand the questions, many of them. Yeah. Uh, he says it's a matter of reading. Now, look, look who knows? I, I think you have made the most interesting point that could possibly be made in NYU's defense which is he's 84 years old. Do we have the full story? I will say that the Times did have a follow-up. There was an opinion article in the Times a few days later, the only big article they wrote about this. uh, They had their letters. A a professor's firing reveals a lot about elite colleges by a woman named Jessica Calorco, uh, who writes an article saying, gee, I, I understand that people were reacting to maybe the students weren't putting the effort, but isn't you know, I think the real story here is that some students uh, come in with great um, academic uh, background based on going to elite high schools and uh, and other students don't have that advantage. They're disadvantaged. In fact, some even have to work while they're at school and therefore uh, there are more demands pressed on them. And those people have a tougher time with courses like this. And these courses shouldn't be gating items. Uh, it's... I was going to say interesting. I don't find it that interesting, but let's say it's interesting. The problem with this article is there is no evidence, no evidence uh, or information that suggests those are the people who are having trouble with the course. And the article doesn't even suggest that there's any information about that. It's it's, it's total fantasy, this article. Say, so, yeah, that's why people failed because they, were, they, had, they had jobs. I mean... <sighs> So, I, I often found that uh, my students with jobs were better, worked harder, yes, and did better because they were organized. <laughs> and we both well, had jobs. They were, they, we both had they jobs. They were incentivized. Well, you were both at jobs. We were in college. We worked quite a bit, and I don't think that really oh, interfered. Yeah, I'm not sure. What, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I wasn't the greatest student. Yes, but I was. So that's that was my point. That's <laughs> all right. So let's. But I didn't take orgo. I didn't. I, you would have done yeah. fine. And, and, and you would have been a star. I seriously doubt that. I also, Orgo is not a freshman course or anything. Oh, God, no. No, no. no. It's a junior course. But it does, it makes me nervous now about uh, if they're just going to be, um, you know, blindly passing people through Orgo to get to medical school. Well, that's will the, the point. Will the doctors know anything? Well, but that, that was uh, about 1,500 of the 6,000. And it's comments. not that you need to know any particular, I don't know, formula. You don't want to be comfortable with the subject. You need, you need to, you know, have a certain, you know, Rigor yeah. and intellectual basis. Well, next time you're in a doctor's office and the doctor says, oh, yeah, yeah, I spent some time in New York City at NYU, then uh, start asking questions. All right, so you had another education. Yeah, so that's what we're going to do from now on. We go to the doctor. Yeah. You go to a new doctor. You say, okay, where'd you go undergraduate? <laughs> Something to that. Only if it's a young doctor. Um, so you turned me on to another article about higher education and this one is called teaming up to survive and it was a story about uh, 
a Michigan, basically about a Michigan liberal arts school called Adrian College, who is basically trying to, it's a liberal arts school, mm-hmm. but it's trying to save itself mm-hmm. by um, offering uh, majors and courses in other areas where it doesn't have faculty right. and doesn't have a department by um, teaming up with the other universities and using their courses. Because, you know, as a liberal arts college, they aren't necessarily offering uh, courses that are job-focused or necessarily preparing you for an obvious job opportunity, whereas some of these courses, like coding or even STEM-oriented courses... Supply chain management. Supply chain management, position one for a job uh, post-college. It's not supply change. It's supply chain. I said supply chain. Just making sure. Anyway, so um, so this is so. I mean, it's a little bit tricky, uh, but uh, there is a, a huge, great like groundswell, a huge turnaround of people saying they're not interested in a humanities degree. I can't get a job. Right. You know, with a liberal arts sure. degree. Yeah. Well, okay? that's the point. And and uh, numbers of degrees awarded in the humanities have fallen 14 percent mm-hmm. they say in the last 10 years um so i mean uh, it's pretty interesting so they're able to um team up with the other schools you can go to adrian you, you'll get your degree at adrian it's a small school but uh you know they, they cite the example this guy uh, was offered a scholarship he was recruited for the football team um, but he couldn't really get the kind of courses he wanted uh, until suddenly Adrian was offering them uh, and by teaming up with like Michigan and Harvard right. and other places. So you're taking an online course that's originating at Michigan and Harvard. Right. So on the one hand, you're saying you've got a greater breadth of learning and perhaps better qualifications, but on the other hand, I know you have feelings about online courses. Right. So, so, I mean, so hopefully they're finding a way of giving adequate support yeah. to students who are doing this. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it seems to be working. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that um, at, uh, I think it was at Adrian, they, um, you know, um, attracted, you know, they've been attracting more students every year, uh, lured 49 students last year and 51 this year, this is at Adrian, who otherwise would not have come, the university says. That translates to more than $8 million in tuition, fees, well, room, and board over four years. That's a little scary. But yeah. yeah, that is very scary. Okay. Um, so that's interesting. It's also interesting that um, they mentioned that there are companies now who interface between these colleges and the universities mm-hmm. offering the courses. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they help you figure out support and so on. So there's a whole new industry industry uh, kind of cropping up. Um, so, you know, I mean, community colleges uh, have been doing this for a while. Um, also, uh, the um, historic black colleges and universities, mm-hmm. um, some of them have, are small, tight um Offerings and they're able to branch out and still provide that cultural experience. Mm. Uh, so we'll, you know, hopefully that uh, will succeed. Mm. And yeah, because uh, there's, but it, it is still sad to me that humanities are out. Well, okay. Although this article points out yeah. that most 
um, not most, but many employers would rather have somebody with some kind of humanities degree, but with like a minor or exposure to, you know, the more tech stuff mm -hmm. as well. Okay. Right. That's what I'm hanging on to. Good. Well, I think it's a positive development. But go, go ahead. You had... Uh, I got more? Yes. You, 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 well, you can skip it if you want. I mean, no, I'm not going to skip this. So, <laughs> one of my all-time heroes yes. has been Oscar Levant. Yeah, right. I just thought he was crazy. Right. Just, uh, how would you describe him? He, he was a he was comedian, not, actor. He was like your crazy uncle, basically. You know, and, it's kind of a... Weird sense of humor, odd-looking guy, tremendously talented piano player, terrible teeth, uh, all these things. Messed he was up. buddies with Gershwin. Buddies and he used with, to, he, was he buddies with Fred Astaire, too? I mean, is Well, it, I, I don't know if they yeah. were personal friends, but I know he was close to the Gershwins. And he, he would play Rhapsody in Blue in concert and yeah. so on. I think that I've heard recordings and so on. And he was just... And there was a kind of a caricature of him. Like, he was always drinking coffee and he was always incredibly hyped up. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just, I just, he was a character like no person I had ever I'm met in my he, life. He's in uh, American in Paris. Yeah. Gene Kelly. He's his best buddy. And he was kind of a wiseacre. And, oh, yes, totally. Yeah. And, you know, uh, to be coming out of Kensington, Maryland, <laughs> that was completely beyond my ken. Yeah. And I loved him so much that I had uh, his obituary on our um, bulletin board in the kitchen uh -huh. for like 25 years. Yeah, it kind of yellowed his hair. Yeah, it was uh, very fragile at this point. Anyway, finally, somebody has decided yeah. to um, you know give him some of his due, I guess. Sean Hayes. Yeah. Yes, that's Sean Hayes. Who's about as unlike... Will and Oscar Grace. Levant. Will and Grace. Will, Sean Hayes. Will and Grace would promises, be the, promises. Would Sean be Hayes. The opposite of Oscar Levant, you would think. Except I know he plays piano. Um, but he's starring in a new production about Oscar Levant. You know, we don't know what Sean Hayes is really like. He may he's be not exactly. Like that. He's not like that. His persona, uh, his avatar on in uh, TV is not like that. But no. uh, anyway. Uh, you had told me a while ago, you heard there's a play coming to New York, Good Night Oscar. Yeah. And uh, it's about Oscar Levant. So, of course, I'm very excited. It's, I think it's about his appearance on the Jack Parr show. Uh-huh. Okay. And um, anyway, it turns out there's a little controversy brewing. Yeah. Because uh, sometime back in like 2012, yeah. um, Sean Hayes was and uh, his producer were working with somebody to write a play mm -hmm. about Oscar, Oscar Levant. They ultimately turned it down, right, yeah. but found somebody else to write the play. Right. right. So um, Sean A chose not to go with option A, went with option B. Right. And option A is soon. And option B is now, is is the now play. in Chicago. It's coming kind of to New York. Kind of a pre-Broadway run. Right. Getting very good reviews. Mm -hmm. And what do you know? Option A uh, is suing. Writer David Ajmi yeah. is uh, well. He I don't know if he's suing. Oh, he's, he's, he's making a fuss on Facebook. Oh, well, that's saying I worse. want you to hear my side of the yeah. story. So, and they he, they're saying that uh, you know he, uh, you know he uh, they um, you know 
parted ways, but uh, with the understanding he could go ahead and develop his play, mm-hmm. that, that both parties would probably be going ahead developing uh, some kind of play on the Oscar Levant. And now he's saying, uh, you know, that uh, Sean Hayes and his people kept him from going forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, squelched it's, his it's, efforts. I didn't realize he hadn't even sued. So it's hard to take that too seriously. But I guess his problem is that they had an option uh, and they held on to the option until it actually expired. Uh, and then they went as they knew they would with option B. And then they felt this, uh, this fellow feels that... Uh, by them holding on to the option, he was uh, basically prevented from finding another backer and proceeding with his own. But, uh, you know, I, I but don't that's what the options are for. That's I, why he got paid. I, I, let me do the lawyer, right, honey. Right. Okay. But uh, the, the fact is, you're right. You're right. I don't think he's got much of a complaint. And yet, there it is. So here's the, the only thing interesting to me about the dispute is that you, being you, think that this is all uh, publicity. Publicity. Right. This is all pumped up. It's nobody, not a real dispute. Yeah, nobody beside me yeah. knows who Oscar Levant is. Yeah, okay. I mean, they, all of us are like, you know, septuagenarians or, you know, or older. Yeah. I mean... Uh, they came up with this way to pump up the volume. Exactly. Okay. So now everybody is going to the Wikipedia to find right out who it. Oscar Levant you is. You know, now that I think about it, the NYU controversy is probably something to get publicity for NYU. Isn't that possible? The Maitland Jones... <laughs> It's the same logic, but yes, okay. Yeah, Maitland, uh, you know, may get another job somewhere else, and uh, NYU will get a lot more students. Say, hey, it's easy to get through (laughs) NYU. Yeah. (laughs) All right, that is an interesting view of the world. Okay, so the Songbirds. Oh my God! I just have to do thing after thing. Well, again, you can pass if you want. I don't. Well, I can't pass on this. Um, this is an article by Margaret Rankle. Yeah. She's a regular columnist for the Times. Yeah, and um, says one morning she woke up and there was a yellow-rumped warbler yeah. lying on her front stoop. And th- this was not uh, an inebriated uh, Christmas caroler. No. Um, this a was bird. a bird. A yeah. bird, yes. Yeah. And um, it apparently flew into her storm door and died. Yes. And so the problem is we know that glass... Uh, during the daytime, glass reflects the living world, thinking it tricks birds into thinking, you know, they don't know that there's glass there. They just they think, think they're they going somewhere. They think yeah. it's another bird. Yeah. Well, Hence it's the says, expression bird brain. Yes. They, they, they head to the glass. Um, they say hello to their reflection. Yeah. They the, well, the mainly they head, they head also, to, they're seeing the reflection of the sky. Mm-hmm. So they think there's sky ahead. Okay, that's All right. You're right. All right. But it turns out that this is a problem at night as well. Yeah. So especially during migration periods mm-hmm. where birds, many birds are migrating yeah. at night. Right. Okay. At night, when most birds migrate, lights pose another threat. Artificial lights attract birds, which then become disoriented, crashing into windows, buildings, and one another, or flying until they collapse unable to see their way out of the light, mm-hmm. past the light. Well, what's shocking, So they just get they kind of caught in the light. But look at the numbers that she has. How many birds she says dies as a result of this? Um, I think the word... Up to a billion birds die in window strikes every year. A billion? Because of daytime reflections now, okay. or nighttime now, lights. that is a number that's completely made up. But that said, 
Uh, let's assume that there was something behind that number. I'm going to assume there is. That's a lot of birds. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a big problem. I mean, uh, so there are steps you can take. Apparently. Yes. One is turn out the lights. Yes, that occurred to me. Okay. Um, two is you can adjust the lights. So she says one of the big problems is random outdoor lights mm-hmm. that just shine up. And uh, they're just, for looks, they're just attractive. They're not mm-hmm. helping people see where they're going or anything like that. If you have a light that's kind of hooded, you know, yeah, um, so it's shining down on the pathway, that's not a problem for the birds, right. okay? It's those lights that shine up right. and illuminate. So she's saying things. this is a problem both in residences and in office buildings. It's a big problem city-wise, I think. Yeah, yeah is, office buildings is, are the biggest. But it is really hard. But um, she says, you know, turn off your lights in empty rooms. Use lamps instead of overhead lights. Um, and uh, draw the curtains and close the blinds after dark. That used to be more of a thing. I used to, I, you know, you watch old movies or, or old TV. Um, there's always a housewife going around the house you know, closing the curtains. Is it during the at day? Dusk, or at dusk. Oh, really? Yeah. It's not because when, of the birds. At nighttime. No, it's more of, I think it was more of a privacy thing, mm-hmm. you know, because once uh, it gets dark and you turn on all your lights, anybody can see into oh, your house. Okay. okay? Um, but it just used to be more of a normal thing. So we need to watch out. We need to help the birds out uh, Yeah. By uh, from the light pollution. Yeah, her suggestions were clear to me. I think you could do a little research and probably do a little better. But I had no idea that it, that many birds were... I think it's... Yeah. I think the biggest problem is more big lights. Yeah. It's, it's clearly the office buildings. Lights, yeah. you know... I mean, um, you get a billion. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's not it, in the small houses. It's, it's, it's going somewhere else. But they, it is Well, they did mention there was a um, an illuminated cross at the particular at school. school. Right. Yeah. And they said it was causing a lot of the problems. University of the South. Yeah. And... Uh, they managed to just turn down the lights. They they um, changed the light bulbs to a lower level, and uh, it helped. It helped a lot. But some people complained, but they they got over it. So um, anyway, finally, uh, there's an article about a Scottish moral philosopher. I know that you've been waiting for that one. A fellow named William McCaskill. Um, Is it, oh, William McCaskill. Yeah, you know that name. No, I thought it might be Doctor Jamie Fraser. God. William McCaskill, Scottish moral philosopher. No one's getting that joke, honey. Right. No one's getting that joke. That's a, an outlander joke. Um, William McCaskill. Uh, turns out in Elon, Elon Musk's, Musk's text messages released as part of his latest court filing, uh, there were some communications involving William McCaskill and in particular a man named Sam Bankman-Fried, who, like Musk, is a billionaire, and William McCaskill is not a billionaire. What William McCaskill is, is a professor of philosophy at Oxford. And he is, his expertise in philosophy is philanthropy. And he has turned out to be the advisor of choice of several billionaires, perhaps Musk, certainly Sam Bankman-Fried, um, in terms of how they should... Uh, give money away to charitable causes. What's the right way to do it? Mm-hmm. What's the, you know, how do you move this money around in the way that does the most good? I mean, which is a significant issue if you have a billion dollars. Um, he wrote a book that called What We Owe the Future, which became a bestseller after it was published in August. I never heard of it, but so what? Uh, in any event, he has helped found a movement called Effective Altruism. 
and effective altruism is, is pretty simply expressed. Uh, it's how do you, again, how, how, do you, how does your money do the most good? And uh, he, as he puts it, advising billionaires on how to give away their money and encourage them to give more is definitely not where I saw my life going. But he sees the utility of it. Um, it's, it, the movement apparently starts with Peter Singer, and we've even discussed Peter Singer as a philosopher. I think he was at Princeton, actually, um, who wrote a famous article called Famine, Affluence, and Morality in 1972. And his essay argued that there was no difference morally between the obligation to help a person dying on the street in front of your house and the obligation to help people dying elsewhere in the world. Uh, this concept became a, quote, sleeper hit in the past two decades uh, in philanthropy and in philosophy. I do remember Peter Singer, I think, was one of the leaders in advising people not to give to universities, by the way. Uh-huh. He said they have too much money. This is silly. What do they need the money for? But in any event, uh, it's just interesting that you have this philosophy professor at Oxford who is being consulted on a regular basis by these billionaires as to where to put their money. As a matter of fact, Bankman-Fried's story is particularly interesting because Bankman-Fried apparently was a student at MIT uh, when he was just starting out, if you will. And he had lunch with McCaskill, and uh, Bankman-Fried expressed an interest on issues related to animal welfare. And um, he was exploring with uh, McCaskill how he might benefit animal welfare. And McCaskill said to him, the best way you, listening to you, might benefit uh, animal welfare is by go and earn a billion dollars and give it away to people who are have organizations that support animal welfare. Uh, and that's what he did. So uh, he actually, he did that because he went to some of these organizations before he started his career. And he said to them, do you want my help or you would prefer to look forward to me making contributions down the line? They said, oh, no, no, you look like you're going to make a lot of money. Do it that way. Help us. <laughs> and of course, in almost all cases, it's, it's more efficient for uh, someone to give money to, uh, to right. a charitable endeavor than to participate in a charitable endeavor directly. So in any event, uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, take on philosophy and philanthropic giving. Right? Right? Yeah. Okay. So there you have it. Scottish. Uh, McCaskill. McCaskill. All right. Well, that's all we have. Uh, It's going to be a quiet week. The Mets are out, and uh, we don't have to worry about them. The Giants, on the other hand... they don't worry about you, Dan. They don't worry about me, as my father said. And the Giants, on the other hand, are making the mistake of raising people's expectations. (laughs) Uh, and they'll be in for a fall later on. So, oh, those overachievers! Yeah, they're the overachievers. Listen, I think about that in coaching. I've I've always believed in the coaching I've done of young people in high school, whatever. You want to lose your first few games. You want to lose your first few games, and because you, you can, you sort of put the expectations at the right level, and then everybody's just thrilled with whatever progress you make. There's a lot to that. Okay. Uh, Words to live by. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan reading the paper still. See you next week.